0: Well, for those of us who work in or have friends who work in lower Manhattan, our hearts palpitated this last week as we received news of yet another act of terror on American soil, this one very close to home. A young man plowed a rented truck into a crowded area, leaving eight dead and many more wounded. October 2017 has certainly been a sobering time for many of us, and it began on an even grimmer note with the worst mass shooting in American history in Las Vegas, Nevada, As hundreds of country music fans gathered for the Route 91 Harvest Festival concert, a lone gunman opened fire and killed 58 people, injuring countless more. To this day, we still don't know exactly why this man committed this atrocity. And as many of us are still revealing from these events, I want to draw your attention to a young man named Sonny Melton. Sonny was a 29-year-old registered nurse from Paris, Tennessee. He and his wife both worked at a local hospital there. I say he was a nurse because Sonny was one of the 58 people shot and killed by the Las Vegas shooter. And he died protecting his wife, Heather. When he could have run, he chose to protect his wife and get in the middle of a bullet in her. Heather tells USA Today, he saved my life. He grabbed me from behind and started running, and then I felt him get shot in the back. Sonny used himself as a human shield, to protect his wife, as the bullets were raining down on the crowd. In fact, one of his professors from nursing school, who knew Sonny personally, commemorates him this way on the school's webpage. <laughs> you know how when you met some, meet someone and you just know that they're kind and good? Well, that was Sonny. He was, had a sweet, kind spirit about him. Now, I don't know much about Sonny Melton, but I do know that in this moment, when life and death hung in the balance, Sonny chose to give his wife, protecting his bride, a woman he loved. And in that moment, he modeled the biblical call for husbands to lay down their lives for their wives, a model we should pursue. But in today's world, however, that seems like a foreign concept, The idea idea of the husband being the protector of the wife seems antiquated, almost as antiquated as uh, the idea of lifelong marriage to one person. Now, again, while I don't know much about Sonny Melton, I do know this. I admire him for choosing to marry the woman he loved as a young man because statistics are telling us this is increasingly not the case. In fact, a recent survey conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau asked young adults about the most important life transition in their lives. And this is what they considered extremely important for life transitions. 62% said they need to complete formal schooling. 52% said full-time employment is the most important transition. 50% said the most important transition is being capable of financially supporting a family. And only 12% said getting married is an important life transition. In fact, author Rod Dreher offers these comments. He says, stunning. Less than half of Americans aged 18 to 34 say marriage and family are part of being an adult. All the other factors have to do with achieving personal autonomy. To be an adult, then, is to be free to exercise one's will independently of obligations to others, including spouse and children. To choose spouse and children, formerly the most distinctive marks of adulthood is now considered ancillary to adulthood by most American adults. Wow. But do you see what he's observing? What young people are saying is that independence is more important than sacrificing personal autonomy in the context of marriage. Indeed, marriage is not something to be entered into lightly. And I think that's where the tension comes in, because the reality is we will have to give up the idea of endless personal freedom. Actress Scarlett Johansson, who plays Black Widow in the Avengers movies, I'm still waiting for the latest trailer to come out if you're a fan, um, I think captures the younger generation's skepticism towards marriage in an interview she recently gave to People magazine. After separating from her second husband, the actress expressed her doubts about marriage, and this is what she says. I think the idea is romantic. It's a beautiful idea, she said. But I don't think it's natural to be a monogamous person. It's a lot of work. And then she goes on to state how living together is actually different than being married. And this is what she says. She says, anybody who tells you that it's the same is lying. It changes things. I have friends who were married for, or who were together for 10 years, and then they decided to get married. And I'll ask them on their wedding day if it's different. And she says, it always is. And then she said this, marriage is a beautiful responsibility but it's a responsibility. Now let me pause for just a second and recognize how ridiculous some of this statement is. Scarlett Johansson essentially says that she doesn't think marriage is natural because it's hard. Yes, it's hard, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. In fact, I can make the argument that going to the gym is not natural because it's really hard, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't exercise and try to be healthy. Or eating healthy food isn't the easiest thing for a lot of us, but does that mean we should go and have McDonald's for every single meal? No. But that's the cultural tension we're going to feel more and more in our day and age because more and more people are choosing not to get married or they're not going to stay married because they view that as being easier. You see the dichotomy that's getting set up? Yes, every, anyone who is married knows that it is hard. And to this point, I agree with ScarJo up here. Marriage is a beautiful responsibility. Or put a different way, we could say that marriage, and especially the Christian view of marriage, is a responsibility that produces beauty. I've heard marriage described as a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle that's all sky. Yes, it's hard. I know, it took you a second. But nothing worth doing is ever easy. In fact, marriage calls us to sacrifice, to put the other person first, to grow personally, and we are better for it. Because marriage is not easy, but it is worth it. Unfortunately, it's also a responsibility that many people are foregoing for the sake of cohabitation or prolonged singleness. And so the sacrifice of Sonny Melton seems like a needle on a haystack nowadays. So at church today, as we consider the topic of marriage, I want to ask us, which path will we choose Should we take the easy road and forget about marriage? Is marriage unnatural because it is hard? Or is marriage a beautiful responsibility to be pursued? And I think today, more than in previous generations, the beauty and purpose of marriage needs to be discussed. While the culture has a variety of views on marriage, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to ask an important question. What does a Christian marriage look like? And that's the key question in Ephesians 5, 18 to 33, which is actually the longest discourse on marriage in the Bible. Now, if I could be honest with you, I realize that ah, a lot of you have been married a lot longer than me, and you could probably teach me much more than I can teach you. So I'm not claiming to be an expert up here today. I just want to simply empty my heart, share with you what God's word says. To that end, I believe our passage today shows us three key things that we need to discover if we're going to follow Christ in marriage, the first thing is this we need a power for marriage. The second thing is we need to discover our purpose in marriage. And then finally, we have to see the picture to which it points. And before we dive into those three points, let's first consider that very important question what is a Christian marriage? What is a Christian marriage? On that point, Ephesians 5 31 is very helpful. <clears throat> because in Ephesians 5:31 Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 which unlocks the key to understanding the foundation of Christian marriage and this is what he writes in 5:31. He says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And to that point some of you say amen. <laughs> My marriage is a profound mystery. In fact, most of my arguments end with complete befuddlement and me asking the question, what just happened? It is true that figuring out how to live harmoniously with another human being is a mystery, particularly at the beginning as we're getting to know the other person. And the thing I don't want you to miss, though, in this passage is that word and that phrase hold fast, Whereas the NIV says, be united an older version say that you will leave your father and mother and you will cleave to your wife. Well, the idea behind that word in the original language is the, is the idea of a covenant. And a covenant, unlike the modern notion of a contractual obligation, cannot be broken if someone doesn't live up to the agreement. In other words, a Christian marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that takes place before God for life, even if the other person doesn't meet your expectations, You may remember Peter Pendell talked a bit about this in his sermon on marriage a few months ago. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Christian marriage is not a declaration of present love. It's the binding promise of future love. Do you see the difference? You see, when my wife and I were preparing for marriage, we spent a good amount of time in premarital counseling, which I certainly recommend, particularly because we understood that marriage is far more than the wedding day. Yes, you need to call people together and make vows publicly, but our counselors are wise to remind us that the wedding day was the culmination of all the hard work we had done up to that point, and there was a lifetime to go. And when Amanda and I stood before our family and friends, this is what she said to me. She says, I will love you until death do us part. Amanda was affirming that she was not only saying I love you on the day of our marriage, but that she would choose to love me In the future, on the days when she didn't like me, and I guarantee you there are some. (laughs) Love is not merely an emotion. Love is a choice. And marriage is not simply about one day where we spend a lot of money, but the binding promise of all the days to come in the future. Now, to this degree, I can understand why this concept grates against our current cultural moment, because our culture doesn't see the most important aspect of marriage as being a covenant. The most important thing in the world's eyes is chemistry. This is the sentiment, I think, behind Scarlett Johansson's words, or as comedian Chris Rock has put it, would you rather be single and lonely or married and bored? Because they elevate chemistry to the top level. And you know, if you're single in here today, it wasn't terribly long that I waded through the waters of dating, the dating world, and if I have to tell you, this mindset is very prevalent, even, I may say, especially among younger Christians. This view of chemistry eliminates many good potential mates because we always think the grass is greener on the other side. And what I would suggest we need to do is recapture that covenantal view of marriage while we're dating. You see, passion and chemistry require spontaneity, but marriage is about duty, which stifles spontaneity. But I would choose the Christian vision of covenant every day of the week and twice on Tuesday, and here's why. Author W.H. Auden says it this way. He says, any marriage happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate, because marriage is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will. Wow. Now, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying marriage is more interesting because it is not about a one-time emotion. It is about the many willful choices we make to love someone over a lifetime fact, some of us in this room know that to be true. You have made many willful choices over the course of 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. You understand that marriage is only partially about I do, and it's more so about I still do. And to that I say keep going, because marriage, Christian marriage, is a covenant. And it's also a profound mystery, but embracing this view of marriage is not easy, and so it requires sacrifice and commitment and persistence to navigate the rocky terrain that comes with this relationship. So how do we do that? Well, that gets us to point number one that I mentioned before. We need a power for marriage. A power for marriage. Because given the complexities of the marriage relationship and the mystery it brings, we need all the power that we can get. Amen? Yes. Yes. Before Paul even starts talking about marriage, he sets it up with an illustration and says something extremely important, verse 18. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And don't miss that important point that he's making right here. He is making the point to say the whole church should be filled with the Spirit. So as Christians, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives one time at conversion, and we should always be seeking to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Paul's point is that we should seek to allow the Holy Spirit to have a controlling influence in our lives that motivates us and directs us. And we should do this continually and put ourselves in a place where God can work in our lives. And what's the result of that? Well, verse 19, he says this, we'll be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart see, first, the filling of the Spirit produces what? It produces singing. It produces joy. Our singing reminds each other of God's character and the work in Christ, but it also is a way of joyfully offering praise to our God for his work in our lives. Thank you. Do you see how this might be a good thing for marriage? Right? How many of us want to be in a joyless marriage? And if you are, you're probably daydreaming about getting out. We need the Spirit to come in and do its work and bring us joy. In fact, the Spirit helps us to find our ultimately, ultimate identity in Christ, which is why we've called this series Rooted, because our worth, our joy, our identity are found in Christ through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. And so the filling of the Spirit also causes us to give thanks, always, for everything, to God our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we talked a little bit about Thanksgiving last week, so I won't go into that. Verse 21 gets us to a more interesting word. This is what Paul says in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay. Now, joy and thanksgiving I get, but what is this whole thing about submitting? But there it is, the S word we don't want to talk about. What's he saying? What does he mean? Well, I think what Paul is doing here is commending an attitude of self-denial and concern for the needs of others that is essential for the Christian community. Paul has already gotten at this idea in chapter 4 when he was discussing unity. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says that in the church there should be humility and gentleness and patience and we should put up with one another in love. Thus, this idea of mutual submission is not just a result of the Spirit's filling, but it's a prerequisite for the reception of grace from others within the body. And so again, you can see how this applies to marriage. Without some level of mutual submission... Our marriages will feel like an all-out war where both partners are always seeking power. And I suspect that some of our marriages in here feel that way. What Paul says here is no. Humbly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this way, you'll grow more Christ-like. Now, unfortunately, the English word submit has a lot of baggage with it. And it really obscures, I think, what Paul's getting at here. Because we often view it as a sign of weakness, But the general use of the verb in the Greek had to do more with the social ordering of people. For example, warriors giving allegiance to their commander. And so there's a few things I want to note about this word submit. Submit is different from the word obey. There's a big difference here. Submitting is a voluntary choice to give allegiance to someone who's an authority. In fact, I love how Andy Stanley puts it. He says it this way. He says, submission is an invitation to lead. And so what Paul is doing is calling the believers to submit to one another, to speak into their lives, thereby destroying power grabs that people within the church were likely trying to engage in. And Jesus even warned his own disciples about this in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 43. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a what? A servant. Right? A servant. Because our example is Christ, our great servant leader, who came not to be served but to serve. It is to him that we voluntarily submit our lives daily. And so understanding that submission is a voluntary action that the Spirit produces is key to our next section. After all, our Lord Jesus himself did not decrease his personhood, but ultimately submitted himself to the Father's plan and chose death on the cross. And it is him that we are called to imitate. And it is to this extent that we require the Spirit's help, especially in our marriages. Friends, can we just admit we need the power of the Spirit to grow us and sustain us in marriage? Truthfully, the chief purpose of marriage is this. It's our growth in Christ's likeness. And we need a continual filling of the Spirit so we can live out our purpose in marriage. And that's point two, our purpose within marriage so now we come to some of the more culturally charged sections of Scripture. To this, I wonder, who is it that assigns these preaching passages? And I say, what's going on? However, I think if we read this in light of verses 18 to 21, it's going to make sense how Paul frames it. So remember, after he introduces this idea of mutual submission, in verse 22, he goes on to speak directly to wives. And this is what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay, Pastor Bob. <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable now, right? I know Paul's going to make a point. He just told both of us to submit. So he obviously is going to tell husbands to do the same thing. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. What? (laughs) Not only does he say I have to submit to him, uh, but he is the head? What in the world is going on here? Well, let me pause again and make it clear again again, that Paul is not advocating blind obedience in this passage. Submission is a voluntary act, and so I'll make that point again because it bears repeating. The Greek verb for submit was most commonly used of ordered relationships in social structures. It's different than obedience. And the verb was in the middle voice, which means he's talking about a voluntary choice, and so that's why I think Andy Stanley's definition, submission is an invitation to lead, is really helpful in understanding it. Now, this also means that you may have to go against your husband sometimes, ladies, because the calling here is ultimately submission to Christ. He he leads first and foremost, and so if your husband ever is ever asking you to do something that goes against the Bible, is unethical, or compromises your relationship with Christ, your allegiance to Christ first calls you to resist and maybe sometimes even rebuke him. That's why verses 18 to 21 are crucial Because you have to remember that Paul has been talking about the church all the way back to chapter 4, and he's talking about relationships in the body. He's talking about walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In fact, as members of the body of Christ, we are called to submit to his loving, sacrificial leadership. And so to that end, the purpose of marriage is, in so many ways, to make the gospel manifest. Look at verse 24. He says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in in everything to their husbands. All of us are ultimately called to submit to Christ, and the marriage relationship is a picture of this. However, this does raise an ongoing debate about the interpretation of this passage, along with many other uh, passages. What are we to conclude about gender roles within the family? Well, there's two main positions, and there's a, a large spectrum in between. On the one hand, there's the egalitarian position, or what may be term the equalitarian position. Those who take this position would argue that there's no distinct gender roles in marriage. Both husband and wife are equal in roles and responsibilities with Christ serving as their head. On the other side, there is the complementarian position. This view also affirms that husband and wife are equal before God, before Christ, and he has authority over both. However, a complementarian would say that God created men and women differently and with distinct roles within marriage. In other words, they complement each other, complement with an E, not an I, although you should complement each other too, and more fully reflect the image of God in their gender differences. Put another way, the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people, and so a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family, And a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. Make sense? Truthfully, this is not a debate we'll solve overnight. In fact, there's many good people who love the Bible on both sides of this. And as I mentioned, there's a huge spectrum in the middle. My personal position leans to the complementarian side because I believe the greatest weight of biblical evidence falls there. I also believe that Paul, in his call both to husbands and wives, was offering a completely countercultural view for roles in marriage within his day. Paul was grounding his argument in the example of Christ, not in the cultural expectations of his day. However, at this point, we also have to pause and recognize that every culture since the beginning of time has found a way to interpret male headship in a way that has marginalized and oppressed women. And friends this has happened in the church as well. Too many people, and in particular, have not understood these verses correctly and have misused and abused them. The message that has then become essentially this: me Tarzan, you doormat. I am the head. And so I simply need to command you. I don't need to participate in the household chores or raising the children. I'm gonna sit on the couch and watch sports because I'm the head and I deserve that. Well, let me just say if that has been your attitude, you've missed the point completely of what Paul is saying in this passage. And you've actually been engaging in some unchristlike behavior. And if you've been the victim of this attitude, I'm very sorry. Ladies, if your husband has taken this attitude, I'm truly sorry, and he needs to be corrected. Because the purpose of headship, listen to this, is not control, it is service. Loving, sacrificial service where the husband always, always, always seeks the well-being of the wife before his own. And for those of you, again, in here who might be dating, there's an important distinction to make here. Who is Paul addressing? Wives. He does not say that girlfriends are to submit to their boyfriends, and it does not say the boyfriend is the head of the girlfriend because you haven't made any commitments yet. Don't let him treat you or tell you otherwise. So what in the world does headship mean? As far as I can tell, this is what it means. It means the husband is called to loving, sacrificial, spiritual servant leadership. Husbands, you are called to be the shepherd of your family's souls and guide them to following Christ. Hear me clearly. This passage does not make the husband the boss and the wife the servant. In fact, in reality, both husbands and wives, the key question we need to ask is this. How can I always seek to put the other person first? When we do this, we're living out Paul's command to imitate Christ in 5, 1, and 2. Now, the best book I've ever read on marriage, and I've, I've read quite a few, is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. And in their chapter discussing gender roles, Kathy, very profoundly, writes this. She says both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission. Whoa. She may even be better than Tim. (laughs) So perhaps the the better question to ask is this. How can I be Jesus to my spouse today? And that's exactly what Paul calls husbands to do next. And I I would note he spends triple the time doing that. Verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church. See, while wives may be called to submit to their husbands, husbands are called to what? To die, to be like Jesus, to die for your wife. Paul says, husbands, you need to engage in self-giving love for your wife. And that means not simply that when an intruder breaks in your house that you stop and and you stop him from doing that, although I would certainly suspect you would. And you should, but it also means that you will look, to, look for ways to die to yourself day in and day out. And what does that look like? Well, men, I think we need to grow in our willingness to deny ourselves to ensure our Christ, our wives' well-being and care. Care for her in a compassionate and loving way when she is sick. Be vigilant to guard against tones and language that could wound your wife. This is a way that many men, many of us, have to be wary of. Deny yourself, listen to this one, deny yourself the desire to relax when your wife needs to talk or engage. Some of us in here really need to hear that. (laughs) Speak to myself first. Now, is there a wife who wouldn't be willing to submit to a servant leader who is doing these things and many more? Husbands, love Your wives, as Christ loved the church. Because your wife is a gift from God. And here's the thing we can't miss. The role of both husband and wife is grounded in that example of Christ. Because Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father, went to the cross. What did he do on the cross? He died for his bride. Let me say that again. What did he do on the cross? He died for his bride. Amen. Now, I've mentioned before that Amanda and I attended a, a family life conference a few years ago that was hugely beneficial. And one of the things at this conference, among the many things we did, at the end, we got to this point where uh, the people who were leading the conference got everybody together in this room, and they had every couple, hundreds of couples, face each other and re-recite your wedding vows as this conference ended. But here's the thing I will, I will never forget. They said, as you're reciting these vows to your spouse... Picture Jesus over their shoulder. Giving your spouse to you as a gift. And as I think about that even now, it brings tears to my eyes because do we recognize that our spouse is a gift? A gift from Jesus himself. So let's reflect his love to our spouse because our purpose in marriage is to reflect the gospel. And the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ in the church. And why did Christ die for the church? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ died for the church so that she might be sanctified. And husbands, you are the spiritual shepherd leader of your family. Let me exhort you to lead In fact, I suspect many wives are craving for this. What does that look like? Well, here's a couple ideas. Take the lead in prayer. Do you pray with your spouse? And if not, why? Husbands, you may may be the ones who are taking, you need to be the ones taking the lead here. And beware, because the enemy will try to keep you from doing this at all costs. He's gonna try to take away your desire, but you have to fight it. Take her lovingly by the hand and pray with her. In fact, some of the sweetest times in my own marriage have been when Amanda and I pray together. Take the lead in studying Scripture. Read passages of Scripture together and discuss what God is teaching each of us. Maybe even this passage tonight as you go home. Bring your family to church. You know, there was an interesting study done by Focus on the Family a few years ago, some of you may be aware of it, about the power of the father in the home. The study came to a couple conclusions. It was, if the the family will follow if this person comes to faith first. You know what they found? They found that if the child comes to faith first, 3.5% of families, everybody else will become a Christian. If the mother becomes a Christian first, 17% will follow. But if the father, and some of you know this, if the father comes to Christ first, 93% of the time, the rest of the family will follow. And as someone who grew up in a home without a father, I can attest to the strength of men in the family or the void of their absence. Husbands, lead your family spiritually. Christ calls us to die for our wives. In fact, verse 28, this is what he says. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. In fact, the second part of this verse is a conscious allusion to Leviticus 19, which states, love your neighbor as yourself, which Paul will cite again in Galatians chapter 5. And here, there he declares that it fulfills the whole law. What is he saying here? He's saying that this is the kind of love that God demands of husbands for their wives. If you want to show the world Christ's love, it starts by recognizing that your wife is your neighbor first and foremost. Because if you can't love your wife, how can you love anybody else? And here's the reality. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ says the church, because we're members of his body. What does it look like to nourish and cherish your wife, men? You know your wives. What makes them feel loved? What is life giving to them? Because the word for nourishing is a word that often is used for uh, parents taking care of their kids, and the word cherish is about providing compassionate care to your wife so she she feels protected. How does your wife feel nourished and protected? I know for my wife that means that I'm giving her my undivided attention and validating her feelings. I know that she feels cared for when the kitchen is clean and there's no dishes lying out in the, the sink when she comes home from work. This is often where the real work of marriage is done. You may be saying, well, is it really as simple as putting dishes in the dishwasher? Yes, sometimes it is. So, men, go and roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. (laughs) The purpose of marriage is to display the gospel. And this is seen so clearly in the relationship between husbands and wives. In fact, Paul concludes this section with another exhortation to husbands and wives. Verse 33. He says, however, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. <laughs> Look to each other before yourself. Both of these are calls to submission to Christ. In his book on marriage, love, and respect, Dr. Emerson Egeritz discusses the greatest needs of husbands and wives. And he looks to this verse to say that the greatest need of the wife is to feel loved and protected, and the greatest need of the husband is to feel respected. And when this doesn't happen, he says we enter into this thing called the crazy cycle, because without love, she reacts, and then if he doesn't get respect, he reacts, and then it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and you're in this crazy cycle that you just can't get out of. In the absence of love and respect, the other person reacts, That's why Paul says, husband, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Look to each other before yourself. While the Christian view of marriage is a lifelong covenantal relationship, the purpose of marriage is about displaying the gospel through mutual submission to one another. And in many ways, husbands and wives are called to the same thing. We're called to emulate Christ. Thus, we, as we consider how this plays out, we can see why marriage is an amazing discipleship relationship because the purpose of our spouse coming into our lives is to partner with Christ in our, in my, transformation process. As author Gary Thomas so aptly puts it, marriage is about our holiness more than it is about our happiness. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Seems so simple, Right? And ultimately, it points us to a greater reality, and that's our final point. We have to see the picture to which it points. Now this last point will be short because it's just one verse, but it's profound, and we can't miss it. In fact, here, at the be- <laughs> at the beginning, Paul appealed to Genesis 2:24 as a foundation for Christian marriage, and he said, "Marriage was God's idea from creation, but it was a mystery." And what in the world was he talking about? Well here's what verse 32 goes on to say. He says therefore a husband or a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am talking about Christ and the church. That's what it's pointing to. That marriage itself is a profound mystery, yes, but so are the riches we have in Christ. Don't you see? That what Paul is saying here is tying all of this back to what he said earlier in the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have an inheritance. That we have been adopted into the family. In fact, I love the lyrics of the song How Rich a Treasure We Possess. It says, how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. His blood and ransom, our defense, his glory, our reward. The sum of all created things are worthless in compare, for our inheritance is him, and his praise, angels, declare. Friends, my marriage is pointing to this reality, and so is yours. In fact, over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God uses the picture of marriage not just as a metaphor, but to point to the reality of the future. That marriage is a picture, earthly marriage, of the penultimate marriage where one day we will fall into the arms of Christ. And in that sense, God uses marriage to show us what he is doing in this world. Do you know what that means? That means marriage is not primarily about me. It's not primarily about you. It's about God and His gospel and His glory. It's about His mission in this world. And for too many of us, whether we're married or whether we're not, we treat marriage like it's about us. But don't you see that this is about declaring the glory of God and to show the world the gospel lived out? Because once we recognize that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins, that he left the Holy Spirit to apply salvation and to love us and walk with us, we can realize that we have all the love that we need in Christ and we can now endlessly give that to our spouse and to others. Tim Keller says it best. Marriage helps us to understand what the gospel is and the gospel gives us the power to be married or unmarried well. Because marriage is primarily not about us. It's about God. And one day we will be with him. In fact, what does John write in the Book of Revelation? He says this. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of a waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. As at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride, and if you're a follower of Christ, that's us, will sit down with the bridegroom and feast. That is our future. And it is to that reality that our marriage is point today. Friends, we need the power for marriage. We need to know our purpose in marriage And we must know the picture to which it points. Because marriage is a way of bringing heaven to earth now. And it brings the kingdom we can't see see with our eyes out into the open. In other words, through the power of the spirit, the invisible becomes visible within marriage. Because marriage is in the visible realm, and it reflects the work of God in the invisible realm. Our marriage is about pointing people to Jesus. Let me close with a story. A young woman named Hannah Peterson was involved in a serious car accident just one month before her wedding in Ontario recently. She broke her pelvis in three places, punctured a kidney, broke some ribs, and suffered a concussion and partial hearing loss during the July 18th collision. And despite being confined to a wheelchair, Hannah was determined not to let the accident affect her big day on August 25th. So when it came time to walk down the aisle, Hannah's father wheeled her part of the way down, and then her fiancé, Stuart, carried her tenderly the rest of the way. Hannah, who was 23, who along with her now husband is originally from Northern Ireland, said that despite her predicament, the only emotion she allowed herself to feel on that day was joy. Obviously, she said, being in the wheelchair and not able to walk was very upsetting to me on my wedding day. She was telling reporters. In fact, because of her injuries, Hannah sat during most of her wedding but wanted to stand for one very important part. I was determined to stand for my vows, she said. It was hard on me to stand for that long, even with Stuart holding me up. But it doesn't seem obvious in the pictures and the video that I was in pain. Hannah has continued to heal in the two months since the nuptials and is now able to walk around the house using a cane. And she added... Stuart never left my side during all of this. He was strong for both of us. He always made me see how blessed I was. And isn't that what Jesus has done for us? That we are blessed because of him. That he carried us down the aisle when we were broken and couldn't walk. And he stays by our side when we mess up. In fact, as Charles Spurgeon once said, in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, he stayed. May our marriages be a picture of the gospel. Amen.